Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as Kyiv braces for more Russian strikes on infrastructure, we analyse the latest remarks on the invasion from Pope Francis and discuss the extraordinary story of the Zambian student who was killed on the front lines in Ukraine fighting for Russia. I also speak to Arisia Lutsevich, head of the Ukraine Forum at Chatham House in London. We talk about NATO and the war, Russia's proxy use of NGOs, and contemporary Ukrainian politics. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 29th of November, day 279. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, and our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, thanks, David, and good afternoon, everyone. A very dramatic morning across Ukraine as we speak. Air raid alerts have been issued across the whole of the country following reports from Ukrainian officials that Russia are preparing a new wave of missile and drone strikes. Kyiv Mayor Vitaly Klitschko has urged residents to stockpile on food in anticipation of the worst case scenario. Um, Talking about food, water, warm clothes and power banks being a priority. And this comes also off the back of President Zelensky yesterday saying that the upcoming week can be as hard as the previous one. Of course, we spoke at length last week about um, just quite how severe severe things were in many of the cities in Ukraine and, and in rural areas. And it would appear that that they're expecting there to be a similar level of of, of loss of water and a loss of electricity this week as well. Broadly speaking, Ukraine is still struggling to restore full power nearly a week after the wave of Russian missile strikes that damaged those crucial energy facilities across the country. The national power grid operator has said the electricity deficit has risen slightly from Monday following the emergency shutdowns at several of the key power plants scattered around the country. Um, Indeed, there was a statement that's just gone out. I think it went out maybe about 15 minutes ago saying that uh, about... 
there's a current deficit of around 30%. Usually electricity producers provide 70% of the electricity consumption, but the deficit is 30%. So um, quite a severe situation uh, this morning in terms of the energy front, which of course in many ways is, 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 is an absolutely pivotal one at this moment. Just more broadly in the military sphere, and obviously Don will be covering this in more detail when he's back on, but just to give a lay of the land as things stand, it's been quite an interesting intervention this morning from the Ukrainian government who have said that from their perspective at least 88,000 Russian soldiers have been killed since February's invasion. So a very striking figure there indeed, considerably higher than the estimates that we've seen seen up until now. Sometimes, as I said yesterday, um, international observers have cited about 30,000 killed for both sides. I, as I said yesterday, believe that those were low for the Russian numbers. And it would seem that um, the Ukrainian government, you know, as I say, these figures cannot be verified. Of course, their numbers are likely to be higher. But nonetheless, this is considerably higher. Um, Are um, closer to perhaps what some other observers have said, which is that actually the, the figures are considerably higher in terms of the numbers killed. They've also said that uh, as of November 29th, 280 aircraft, 261 helicopters and 2,911 tanks have been destroyed. So um, very considerable indeed. So that's uh, the, the the biggest sort of headline in, in the military um, space. There's also been some quite interesting insights offered this morning from uh, the military UK Ministry of Defence. They've talked about how uh, the uh, strategy of uh, battalion tactical groups known as BTGs, this has sort of been a mainstay of the Russian army for for a long time, typically sort of comprises of a battalion or two to four companies reinforced with air defence, artillery, engineering, logistical support, that these are effectively been stopped being deployed now um, as a consequence of the way that the war is going. And for some people, that marks a a very considerable decline in the capacity of the Russian army to uh, operate effectively. They've been absolutely pivotal pivotal in uh, victories in the past. And uh, so if this is true, then I think it should be quite seen as quite a significant um, development. But I know that Roland has, has some thoughts on this. Thanks, Francis. Well, let's go to Roland Oliphant, our senior foreign correspondent. Uh, Roland, what would you like to add? Um, I mean, on the BTGs, I don't know, terrific insight, but it, it strikes me as a sign that the BTG concept, it, as it has hit reality in the Ukraine war, has has kind of failed, really. I mean, the idea of a BTG is to have this self-contained, you know, as Francis said, battalion-sized unit, which has everything it needs um, to to do its own thing. Um, so artillery, reconnaissance, support, logistics, all of that together in a kind of, you know, up to 800 man unit. Um, and it's, it's a great idea, right, if you can make it work. But there's, there have been problems with it from the get go. I mean, what, one of the problems is that one of the successes Russia had with BTG deployment was in 2014, 2015, in the first invasion. Um, and that ended with frankly, a decisive Russian victory, but they had real trouble pulling it together. I mean, they, they sent in a tank unit from the far East, from Buryatia, we think into, into Donbass, um, in that last winter stage of the war, um, around, you know, December, January, February, um, from 14 to 15. And, um, you know, as we understand, they had to pull units together to make a BTG because it turned out they didn't have enough professionals available. Um, just because 
because of this long-running problem in the Russian military of, of, of paper soldiers, fake soldiers, you know, you say you've got this many, um, this many professionals, but actually most of your men are conscripts, um, you know, you pocket the cash, you, you, you know, the high command doesn't know you're up to strength. So that was an issue going into this war. And the other thing about BTGs, of course, is that they're, you know, it, it, it kind of goes back to the idea of, of the core, which, you know, Napoleon came up with um, this idea of a, of, a, of a kind of autonomous, um, all singing, all dancing thing that can act like its own little army. Um, great for offensive warfare, but, you know, the offensives haven't been going too well. Um, and uh, when you've lost a lot of a lot of junior officers, a lot of NCOs, a lot of your experienced guys, and you're you're having to kind of knit things together um in different ways um, to, to kind of keep things going. And you've got, uh, you know, complicated tangles of chain of command between the regular military and your, you know, DNR, LNR levied militias from Eastern Ukraine and Wagner. Um, you know, you find yourself, um, you know, having to basically improvise as it goes. So I think, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's quite an interesting moment Um probably an evolution of, of of Russian military thinking coming up against the you know the hard reality of going up against um, a peer enemy um, and I'm sure when the war is over you know there'll, there'll be lots of military thinkings going at this going okay why 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 did the BTG system have to be abandoned um, was it because it was unsound was it because it wasn't done properly or was it because it's just not suitable um, for this war but but definitely an interesting development um, from the kind of war nerdish point of view. Well, thank you, Roland and Francis. Francis, can I just come back to you quickly before we go to Natalia? Francis, you have one more uh, military update for us. Yes, I'll just be brief on this because we've been talking about this issue now for several weeks. Uh, This question of of what weapons Ukraine need next and want next and what the West is willing to provide. So we've heard an update this morning that the US could send crucial word there, could Ukraine some cheap new precision missiles that are capable of hitting targets 100 miles away, which of course would allow Kyiv to strike targets much deeper behind uh, Russian lines than they currently are capable of doing so. The Pentagon is said to be considering a proposal by Boeing to send the, uh, the ground launch small diameter bomb, that's the GLSDB system, as the West struggles to meet Ukraine's demand for more arms. So these weapons are said to be relatively quick, cheap to produce, as I say, have about twice the range of standard HIMARS missiles. Of course, HIMARS have been absolutely critical in the Ukrainian setters up, up until now and could be deployed in Ukraine as early as the next spring. This is according to a document, I should say, by Reuters. And uh, whilst, of course, as we've been speaking about in the past, Washington has declined requests for the ATA CMS missile, which has a range of a range of 185 miles. These cheaper alternatives are still, as I say, quite considerable in terms of the uh, distance that they're able to be fired, which is why for some people this is this will be a very, very significant intervention indeed. So as I say, it's not guaranteed yet. But the fact that we're having these conversations now is suggestive that conversations are quite far developed. Thank you very much, Roland and Francis, for uh, for that. And Natalia Vasileva, our Russia correspondent, can I come to you? Pope Francis has made quite a few interventions in this conflict, in this invasion. They haven't always been well received. His latest um, has well, seems incredibly controversial. Can you, you wrote the story with uh, with Nick Squires, our Rome correspondent? Can you talk us through what he said and what the reaction has been? 
Good afternoon. Uh, yes, that's right. The, the, the Pope has uh, spoken on the Ukrainian conflict before, but it's important to say that in the past nine months, he's been quite careful about not to blame the Kremlin directly. He has called on Russia to stop the hostilities. But he's been very careful not to criticize Vladimir Putin personally. And um, in uh, um, an interview with an American uh, Jesuit publication that came out last night, he was actually asked specifically why he has been unwilling to criticize the Russian president. And in response to that, he he made quite a um, rambling reply, uh, saying that um, everyone is aware of the cruelty of Russian troops, but in his opinion, quote, the cruelest are perhaps those who are of Russia, but are not of the Russian traditions, tradition, such as the Chechens, the Buryats, and so on. So um, those uh, comments didn't play well with anyone in Russia, pretty much, whether they are uh, pro-Kremlin or anti-Kremlin, because obviously they... Um, singled out uh, uh, just those two ethnic Russian minorities somehow for uh, crimes committed in Ukraine. Uh, now, we, we saw uh, the Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov being particularly active in the war in Ukraine. We saw reports of um, ethnic Buryats uh, spotted in several towns outside Kiev. Many local residents pointed out uh, uh, people of those particular ethnicities. But it's, it's important to say that um, those reports came in the uh, initial weeks of the war. And um, for many residents of Ukraine, those people simply looked too exotic. So they would st to stand out compared to thousands and thousands of um, ethnic Russian soldiers. Um, and when the massacre of Bucha happened in April, there were reports of ethnic Buryats uh, leading the massacre. Those reports were uh, subsequently debunked. Ukrainian authorities recently published a um, major investigation uh, along with um, independent Russian media outlets um, naming and identifying Russian soldiers who were involved in that atrocities. They were Russian soldiers of all ethnicities. There is no basis for anyone to say that that particular ethnicity is, is to blame or was the cruelest. And those um, those comments were uh, Russian authorities were sounded quite offended by those comments from of the Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman to the Russian ambassador to the Vatican, um, who is never who was never known for being uh, too critical of the Holy See and. Um, um, even for him, that obviously was too much, and he issued a note of protest to express, quote, his indignation against the strange remarks attributed to Pope Francis. Um, it's also important to say that uh, there's quite a large um, um, anti-war community in Buryatia and outside of Buryatia, which is a um, Russian region in, um, um, in the east of Siberia, um, uh, mostly populated by people of uh, Mongol origin. And we've seen um, qu quite a large number of uh, rallies abroad and different online um, protests by um, uh, Free Buryatia Foundation. Uh, that's, that's like a grassroots organization founded by um, ethnic Buryats who have been very vocal about their opposition to the war. Um, and... Um, their leader, for example, this morning publicly called Pope Francis the racist and um, expressed her um, astonishment why instead of um, 
you know, you know, putting a finger on one ethnicity, Pope Francis didn't blame Vladimir Putin directly or or, or the Kremlin. Um, so yeah, we have yet to see what the Vatican says. There has not been any um, response from from the Vatican to what appears to be a major political scandal in Russia and abroad. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Natalia. That was very comprehensive and took us into, I think, why it was deemed so controversial, uh, Pope Francis's remarks. Uh, Francis Sterney, I know you've got some thoughts on this. Well, yes, just a little bit of historical context on the significance of this debate. I mean, I think the Catholic Church will be very sensitive to this issue and charges of of perhaps getting the Ukraine war wrong, if that's the way of articulating it. I mean... You might think the historians are a rather mild-mannered bunch, but one of the most hotly contested debates at the moment is known as the Pious Wars. And this is around the role of Pope Pius Twelfth during the Second World War and his role in not doing enough, as some critics have said, or quite the opposite of doing a lot um, with regard to the, the Holocaust and in denouncing the uh, the Nazis in their invasions of sovereign nations in in. In Europe. In 1939, for example, Pope Pius XII expressed dismay at the invasion of Poland, but did not ascribe blame to anybody. So you can see why some historians have been particularly critical of that view. I mean, I, th- I think, as I say, this is a very, very contested area of, of, of historical scholarship. And there are some who are absolutely adamant that the Catholic Church should have done a lot more, who say that there was not enough outright condemnation of the actions of uh, the Nazi state and of the Holocaust. Um, There are those who point towards the rat lines, which were um, essentially a means for senior Nazi officials to be smuggled out of uh, Nazi Germany before the end of the war. And, and and Brazil and other countries. So there's that side of the view. And then the other side of the view is actually that much more was done than has been widely recognised, that there was a lot of private backstage conversations taking place between the Vatican and the Nazi state, and indeed lots of individual acts of heroism by uh, senior priests within the Catholic Church to save Jews and other people who were persecuted by the Nazis. So as I say, a very um, hotly contested area, this, which is why I mention it, and it's a really ongoing historiographical debate of lots of interest. But I mention it here because I think it's important to frame this dispute um, about and reactions to how the Vatican is seeing this within this broader struggle about the Vatican's role in the big issues of the last century. And indeed, this issue is one that I think people will have a lot of different perspectives on what the Vatican has done. It may be one where and it, it won't be for many, many years until we know the true nature of the church's role in, in trying to stop this war or in perhaps not doing enough. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Natalia and Francis. Roland, can I come to you? One of our uh, previous guests, Owen Matthews, has written a fascinating piece in the British magazine The Spectator, uh, which you've read. Um, I thought it'd be interesting if you'd give us a, a summary of, of what you think, uh, of what you found there. Right. Yes, exactly. So um, Owen Matthews, who was on the podcast, um, I do not have the date in my mind, but I'm sure if, um, I'm sure you do. Um, but, but do look back through our archives and listen. It was a, it was a fascinating interview. Um, uh, Owen Matthews has a piece in The Spectator. Um, uh, I, I believe it might be an extract from or, or a summary of some stuff he reported in his, his new book that's out. Um, but it's fascinating. He's basically looking at the uh, the relationship between Russia, China and the United States and, and the role of China in this war, which has been um, opaque 
um, to say the least. Um, so when the war began, you know, everyone was wondering, is, is, is China going to back Russia, its, its, its ally or not? There's obviously been a lot of um, diplomacy tugging back and forth, the Russians saying to Beijing, come on, lend a hand, and, and the Americans saying to Beijing, oh, for God's sake, don't, you know, this is a bad idea. And, and, and President Xi Jinping of China um, standing inscrutable in the middle. Well, um, Owen says he has a source um, uh, with, with links to, you know, kind of high, high ranking individuals in Beijing um, who say th- this, th- this is the way it's played out. Um, essentially, China has played um, a kind of uh, a, a kind of moderating role, um, a restraining role in a way um, that has um, stopped the Russians, maybe stopped the Russians from going through with their nuclear threats. But there is a quid pro quo, and the quid pro quo has been um, the Americans refrain from providing uh, providing Ukraine with some of the more modern weapons that the Ukrainians have demanded. So, for example, Owen claims, citing his sources, um, that if you remember back at the beginning of the war, um, in the first week or so, uh, Poland came up with this uh, with this plan to uh, send 26 uh, to 33 MiG-29s um, to uh, Ukraine. They said, look, if the Americans uh, provide us with some modern fighter jets to backfill this, we'll send them over. Um, it seemed like it was going to happen. Then at the last minute, the, White, the, the Pentagon or the White House suddenly said, oh, we don't think that's viable. And it was nixed. And no one really understood why. Now, Owen says this is because um, of a, a, a last-minute initiative from Beijing um, telling the Americans, uh, you know, um, don't do that. Um, and, 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 and quid pro quo, um, we all kind of keep the, uh, keep, keep the, the Russians, um, more, more violent tendencies in check. And he, he points out that this followed Putin's first, um, threat of nuclear escalation on the 27th of February, um, which genuinely alarmed, um, the Chinese. Um, now I, I, I would point out that this, um, it seems to me fairly thinly sourced. It seems to be only one or maybe two sources on this, but but it it's it's not implausible at all. Um, if we think back to the Bali summit, the the G20 summit in Bali last week, um, where you had Joe Biden and Xi Jinping sitting down for three hours, um, remarkably long meeting, and then coming out with you know really surprisingly on message comments, you know, kind of talking about the inadmissibility of nuclear war, a clear kind of warning to Russia that, look, both America and China, the world's two other preeminent nuclear powers, are not going to allow you to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Um, That's a big gain for the Americans, but it will have come at a price. The Chinese are not just going to, you know, hand out these these diplomatic goons for free. Um, And Russia is an important ally. To China, I don't think we should underestimate that. And the Chinese are not just going to throw the Russians under the bus um, because they think Vladimir Putin has bitten off more than they can chew. Um, so definitely something to think about. A few other interesting tidbits in here. Um, Owen also claims that um, in the the so-called No Limits Partnership, that's a, a, a treaty that uh, the uh, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping came up with um, before the war, back in uh, September last year, I think it was. Um, which was a big document, um, mostly full of vague words without concrete commitments, talking about, you know, having each other's back and and we all have a future kind of multipolar world and and a, a kind of vague, woolly, strongly worded commitment to, um, you know, a, a post-American world. 
uh, and that common vision of ending the era of of American interference and us being bossed around. But it was, if you read it carefully, kind of devoid of concrete. Well, Owen says that there was actually a secret protocol um, that was not published in that, which was a a mutual defense uh, pact, um, which would oblige them uh, to come to one another's defense in in case of attack. He says that the Chinese insisted on sticking in a clause, um, adding some tricky, uh, what do you call it, caveats to that commitment, um, which means the Chinese are off the hook for the for the, for the Russians, you know, annexing Kherson or whatever. You know, the Chinese are not going to be obliged to go to war because Russia has said, right, Ukraine is Russia. Um, so if Chu can he. Now, I have to say again, single source, no one else has reported this, um, people I respect in Moscow um, point out that Russia is historically um, wary of signing um, this kind of treaty. Um, so I would treat with a degree of caution, but I do think there is, um, there, is, there is definitely something to look at here because one of the long-running questions is why is the United States, why are the West holding back on certain weapon systems? Why haven't we given Ukraine we, the collective West, um, NATO standard main battle tanks, Abrams or, or, or Leopards. The standard excuse is, oh, well, the supply chains, oh, there's a big logistical supply chain on Abrams or Leopards. The, the, the Ukrainians know how to use uh, T-72s, give them that instead. Well, really, um, you know, lots of other countries use these things. Um, you could have put those supply chains in base. Um, the uh, the ATACMS um, long-range uh, missiles that um, Francis was just talking about, um, clear refusal to provide them, um, modern jet fighters. Um, we haven't seen Ukraine provided with, um, you know, a NATO standard um, uh, fast jet. Um, all these things have not been on the table. Why not? One of the one of the theories was well, Russian red lines. I really worried about Russian red lines. Certainly, something going on with China. Um, so look, give it a read. Um, I think it's interesting. Um, and, and do listen back to, to our interview with Owen, uh, where he describes this in his own words um, from a couple of weeks ago. Thank you, Roland, very much for that, that summary. I think you're, you're right and to point out that we should treat this with, with quite a lot of caution. Um, but as you said, interesting nonetheless. And it certainly speaks to some of the issues that we've been discussing for, for months now. And some of the issues that really lie at the heart of, heart of the West's, collective West's response to uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, just before we go on, uh, Natalia and Francis, just wondered if you had anything to add or any, any thoughts, any nuance to add to, to that. Well, I would just echo what Roland was saying there in terms of its significance uh, and importance on so many different fronts that we've talked about now for, for, for some time. I mean, I recall when we were when we started the podcast saying that absolutely that China's role in this was going to be integral, the kind of channels that would be open, back channels between the West and between Russia um, and, and China uh, in terms of this, the scope and scale of this war. And if these revelations are true in The Spectator by Owen Matthews, then I think that it would speak to that. And no doubt many of the uh, conversations that have taken place, we will not be privy to for a very, very long time. And it may be one that historians will have to um, have to chew on uh, when the archives become available and the memoirs are published. But as I say, it doesn't surprise me because that these conversations are taking place because it would also explain the decrease in, in nuclear rhetoric that we saw after that particularly heated period. Um, it would explain that and it would also explain, uh, to Roland's point, 
reasons why certain weapons have not been delivered. So these kind of conversations uh, happening behind closed doors are absolutely vital. And unfortunately, of course, from a journalist's perspective, it's quite rare for us to get access to those until sometimes several months after the fact. Well, thank you uh, very much. Uh, Natalia Vasilieva, I want to come to you uh, next. Unless you have anything to add on that, please please feel more than welcome to. Uh, but you've, you've been looking at this um, extraordinary story of a, I believe, a Zambian student in, in Russia who ended up on the front lines. Can you talk to us about that? Yes, sure. Um, as uh, our readers uh, may have heard, um, a couple of months ago, just before Russia announced the partial mobilization, uh, there was a uh, drive to look for recruits for um, the Russian war effort in prison. And um, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the um, founder of the notorious private military contractor Wagner, was actually seen um, himself trying to recruit convicts in Russian jail. And um, just earlier this month, we we heard about the death of a man from Zambia. And the government of Zambia has been quite vocal about the issue. It has... um, made several statements. It has uh, publicly urged the, the Kremlin to explain how a Zambian national who was serving his sentence in a Russian prison ended up dead, and uh, not just dead, but dead in um, uh, eastern Ukraine. Um, and uh, just this morning, we heard from uh, Mr. Prigozhin himself, the founder of um, the private military contractor Wagner, who confirmed that uh, Zambian students identified as uh, Lemehani Nathan Nirenda, uh, age 23, uh, has indeed uh, been killed in eastern Ukraine. And Mr. Prigozhin um, um, also claimed that he himself recruited um, uh, Nirenda and that that happened um, sometime earlier this, this summer. Um, and again, like we're, this is this is about uh, taking uh, Mr. Prigozhin's words for um, at a face value or not. But according to him, the Zambian students willingly um, volunteered to go and fight Eastern Ukraine while he was serving a prison sentence um, in a Russian um, prison colony outside Moscow, um, allegedly because of anti. Um, colonial statement sentiment and because he felt thankful um, to Russia for its efforts, um, historical efforts um, recently and in recent decades, um, encouraging African nations to uh, fight against colonialism. Uh, Now, um, the Zambian student's case has been quite publicized in his native country and uh, um, we've seen Zambian media uh, looking quite closely into that case. And what we know is that uh, Lemehani Nirender um, was a student in Russia. Um, apparently, he was a very bright student back home. Um, he enrolled um, in a university uh, in uh, Moscow to study uh, nuclear engineering, quite a prestigious university, I have to say. And uh, two years later, he was... Um, apparently working as a uh, part-time delivery driver. And this was around the time when he was arrested by Moscow police, um, allegedly with drugs, and um, um, later on sentenced to nine years in prison. Um, Again, when I I heard about this case, that sounded quite familiar because we have... um, um, Russian police is um, infamous for planting drugs on uh, suspects. They are infamous for using... 
uh, drug possession as the most common, the most easiest to pin down crime if they wanted to improve their statistics. So it looks like th- this this man um, simply fell victim um, to um, to that scheme, and uh, two years down the line, he was in a prison colony. Um, outside Moscow, this, which is um, where uh, the Wagner mercenary um, group recruited him. Uh, we have heard from his family who say that they um, had no knowledge of him um, ever wanting to go to fight. All we know that he called his family from prison saying that he was being released. They had no other details until they heard from um, um, a man in Russia early this month uh, telling them that um, uh, he died and that the parents should um, come to Russia and pick up um, his body. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Natalia. What a, I mean, in so many ways, what a, what a really wretched story to, to have to report on. Um, Roland and Francis, do you have any reaction to that? Anything to add before we move um, to Francis's final political updates? I was just going to endorse what, what Natalia said about kind of very familiar, um, you know, kind of sounding given given the reputation of Russian police for planting drugs on people and also um you know the unfortunate fate of a lot of a lot of guys from africa guys and girls from africa who who go to study um in russia and quite often find themselves in 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 quite tricky positions um once they've they've gone to study it's a it's another issue it's not really related to the war and it's not something we've really got to uh, a moment to get into now but that there is an issue um, with African students going to study in Russia and then finding themselves for, for various reasons, um, very financially vulnerable positions um, and, and, you know, getting trapped in, in low paying jobs and being open to, um, you know, abuses of that type. Um, so just to finish, and, and I just, just on that point, since we're talking about, you know, different nationalities and things like that um, on the Pope's comments, um, it's it, the Pope's comments are frankly, you know, they're quite mad and they show, um, excuse me for editorializing a kind of the, the exact opposite of an actual grasp of Russia's nature as a, a kind of multi-ethnic imperial post-imperial state. You know, he seems to have grasped the fact that there are different ethnic minorities within russia and he's you know provided a completely distorted ridiculous kind of comment out of that um which is another thing we could we could look into um but i, I just i just i just i just read those comments this morning and i thought someone has to say this you know um it's it's so out of touch with uh with reality or, or an understanding of the nature of that country it's just it's kind of hopeless anyway Thank you, Roland. Thank you, Natalia. Francis, you have a few more updates for us, I believe, before we go to our final thoughts. Yes, well, I'll try and whiz through uh, as quickly as I can. So uh, quite an insignificant story in the political realm this morning. NATO has committed to a future Ukraine membership. That's according to the Secretary General of the organisation, who has reaffirmed the military alliance's commitment to Ukraine, saying that the war-torn nation will one day become a member of the world's largest security organisation. He said, quote, NATO's door is open. Russia does not have a veto on countries joining, he said in a reference to the recent entry of North Macedonia and Montenegro into the security alliance, and said that um, Russian President Vladimir Putin will get Finland 
and Sweden as NATO members soon. So, say this is all coming on the back, of course, of what was meant to be a, a, a war that would divide the West, that would divide NATO, that would cause it all sorts of headaches. And actually, the complete opposite has happened here. This has been a unifying force, and indeed. Uh, as, as as he references there, Finland and Sweden are, are very much uh, on the way to joining. It's more or less uh, uh, been signed off now, um, and the, uh, the this you know in sense of Ukraine's future, I think they'll be absolutely cock a hoop at this this morning because it, whilst it may only be confirming what what we already knew was the direction of travel, if Ukraine were to enter the NATO alliance at the end of this war, then I think that that would offer them the security guarantees that that they would desperately, desperately want after this invasion because the the risk for Ukraine is that whatever the end of this war looks like, that if there is a pause in hostilities, the the first opportunity of strength, Russia will then do something else and will seek to resume operations. This is assuming that, that there were, as I say, some kind of ceasefire or something like that. So in that for fear of that, they will be absolutely um, certain that whatever they they agree to the Ukrainians, that they will have security guarantees. The security guarantees that they were once promised, of course, by the West, but were not secured. And so this would offer that of new with NATO membership, because of course an attack on one NATO member is an attack on all. So that's uh, I think the lead political story. Just uh, another couple that I wanted to touch on briefly. Um, it's, Coming off the back of this, uh, ministers from Sweden, Norway, Estonia, Iceland, Latvia and Lithuania have all travelled to Kiev today to further condemn uh, Russia's invasion and to offer their uh, symbolic and obviously political support to the country. They've met with President Zelensky in a pledge of ongoing support. There's been some quite... Um, uh, striking remarks from them, just reiterating the line that the only way the war ends is with Putin's defeat. So obviously a, a symbolic moment when you see all of those significant ministers together in one go. Um, I believe they took the train there, but I'm not certain. But either way, this train journey now seems to be very well um, <laughs> utilised by politicians across Europe. I think Boris Johnson's used it. I think Ursula von der Leyen's used it. So um, yeah, very, and I think that it has its own chef as well on board. But anyway, that's um, by the by. And then just lastly on... Um, uh, the, the state of US and Russia relations. There's been quite an interesting story this morning about how the communications line between the militaries of the United States and Russia has been used only once since the start of the war. This is from an official who spoke on the condition of anonymity, who said that the US initiated a call through the uh, through the deconfliction line um, to communicate its concerns about Russian military operations near critical infrastructure in Ukraine. So that would suggest that it was not nuclear related, which is what one might expect, but rather had something to do with uh, critical infrastructure. Unfortunately, we don't know any more than that. Those are the only details that we know. But nonetheless, quite interesting, I think, in two respects. As I say, the first is, is that I think if it's relating to critical infrastructure, it may be something to do with Zaporizhia, so that it's energy related, but it's not nuclear weapon related. But there are obviously concerns about the the radiation risks attached to that. But as I say, I don't know that. I'm just saying that that's uh, perhaps a, a possibility. I think the other interesting thing about this is that, of course, this line is still open um, and is still being utilised, which would, I think, speak to the fact that that both sides, as we've spoken about um, 
uh, probably about a month or so now, that we know that there are still extensive dialogues taking place um, between um, both armed armed forces for fear of um, obviously um, accidental escalation. Um, so I think it's interesting in, in that respect. But I think it's also right to point out that there's been another story today that Russia has indefinitely postponed nuclear weapons talks with America that were scheduled for later this week. Um, they were due to meet in Cairo uh, tomorrow to discuss resuming inspections under a new uh, reduction treaty. But uh, Russia have pulled the plug on that, um, um, saying that, you know, in essence, that the, that the, the um, United States are operating in bad faith. The US State Department has said that unilaterally postponing the meeting and stating that it would propose new dates in due course. And um, as I say, I think this, this should be seen in the, in the context of, um, you know, that whilst the dialogues are open on certain channels, signs of there being further um, cooperation, shall we say, uh, with America at this moment is clearly seen as being too um, diplomatically sensitive, too uh, diplomatically unwise, I'd say, from the Russian perspective, um, for all sorts of optics reasons. And so as a consequence, they've said that that these meetings will not be going ahead. So um, a complicated picture there, but uh, hopefully that covers the political sphere for today. Brilliant. Thank you, Francis. Uh, Just one tiny little update from me it's just come in on our live blog uh, and this speaks to i think uh Roland's summary of the owen matthews article in the spectator on uh well the, the big question why isn't the why is uh the support of the west in terms of material um in, in some sense limited uh the lithuanian foreign minister this is gabrielius landsbergis has said uh nato is not running this is a quote nato is not running low on tanks so therefore if we expand the inventory of what is being sent to ukraine then nato has a chance to keep supply going which is uh, i think an interesting uh tidbit and speaks a little bit to uh uh, what Roland was speaking about earlier. Well, we're, we've run out of time, unfortunately, between us three. Thank you so much for all of your uh, thoughts and um, your expertise. Uh, can I just get your final thoughts, Roland, Francis and Natalia? I don't know who would like to go first. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to go first. Um, yeah, I would. what I would uh, mention is something that uh, you guys probably discussed uh, yesterday. I'm not sure I wasn't around. Um, uh, it's something that, that hasn't got enough publicity, in my opinion, but something to um, watch for. Uh, we heard from Ukrainian authorities yesterday saying that they are seeing signs that um, Russian troops could be withdrawing from the Zaporizhia energy plants. Um, according to the um, head of the Ukrainian power grid, he said that Russians are even uh, dismantling, he didn't say equipment, but he just put it the way he put it. He said Russians are stealing everything there is to steal. And um, Russian state media were quite quick to react and say that nothing is, uh, no such thing is happening, that you know, Russia is staying at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant for good. But this is, uh, you know, if, if it happens, obviously this is going to be a, quite a dramatic turnaround for Russian forces. And that's something I would um, um, watch out for this week and later on. Thank you very much, Natalia. Uh, Francis Stanley. Well, thanks, David. I just wanted to point out a story that I saw actually in the Kiev Independent last week. And I've, I've been meaning to talk about it for a while because I think it speaks to another aspect of this war that can often get lost amid all of the talk of military affairs and political stuff. So um, the Herzon Art, Fine Arts Museum once hosted one of the richest collections in all of Ukraine, but it's been emptied of all of its works by Russian officials. That's according to their story. Now, that's 14,000 works 
books are were in its collections, and apparently it's been stripped bare. And the piece goes into a lot of detail about what exactly was there, but obviously speaks to the manner in which looting has been part and parcel of uh, those territories that Russia has controlled since. Um, the war began, not just of art, but of, of all sorts of, um, of individual property um, as well. And I think just sort of to offering some contextualization to this, of course, the looting of art for economic benefit, as well as a way of illustrating cultural dominance and uh, as well as the economic benefits, is also a way of seeking to erase a, a culture. And it's as old as war itself. The Romans would show off their looted conquests in triumphs through the streets of Rome. Napoleon, of course, famously stole the horses from St. Mark's Basilica in Venice and placed them atop the Arc de Triomphe to show his uh, conquest of Europe. In modern times, both the Nazis and the Soviets uh, are perhaps offered the most egregious examples of art that's been looted, although I would say with one key difference. Whilst we hear the odd story of Nazi loot being discovered and returned to its owners, most of the major lost masterpieces from the Second World War, um, many of which I think went to decorate Hermann Goering's uh, castle, but anyway, uh, were restored to the museums that they were looted from. But that's not the case with much of the art that was stolen by the Soviets in the Second World War. It's still believed that there are hundreds, perhaps thousands, of lost masterpieces from Europe hidden in the depositories of the Hermitage. They're in a sort of state of perpetual limbo because they were declared that they would almost certainly, if, if they were discovered, you know, if they were declared, they would be almost certainly restituted at considerable expense and amidst considerable international outrage that they've been holding on to them for so long and have not made them public. And so on the back of that, I remember visiting Museum Island in Berlin a few years ago and there's still a museum there that offers catalogues of lost art with black and white photographs of what what has vanished and they're printed interestingly in German but also in Russian. Um, so the idea being that if anyone knows where these artworks have gone in Russia, that they might take this catalogue and, and, and go and have a look. So as I say, I mentioned this just because hopefully these stolen artworks will will be returned at the end of the war, that the international eye will, will remain on them. But the risk is that, um, that that will not be the case and that these artworks will be lost potentially not just for a generation, but for, for a very, very long time indeed. And so it's really important, I think, that the international community, whilst playing of course, as much close attention as it has to to war crimes, that it also plays as much attention to cultural crimes too. Thank you very much, Francis and Natalia. Uh, Natalia, we do have a question from from listeners, but unfortunately, I think we've run out of time uh, today. So we will, I promise, we will get to it next time you're on. Uh, Roland Oliphant, would you like the very final words? Sure. I mean, I think look, this morning there's been obviously the, this big air raid alert in Ukraine, uh, then cancelled. Um, but it looks like something is coming. You know, Zelensky was very clear on Sunday night. You know, we're expecting something nasty. There's been a lot of Twitter chat. Ukrainian intelligence has been talking about uh, the Russians. You know loading up their strategic bombers uh, ready for a strike um it, it's very likely um today tomorrow this week we're going to see another one of these absolutely devastating horrible um you know 100 odd cruise missiles slamming into ukrainian energy infrastructure um across the country um possibly they're waiting for the foreign ministers the nato foreign ministers meeting in bucharest to wrap up um, uh, you know, show of strength. Um, that would be very in character for Vladimir Putin. Um, snubbing his, snubbing his nose at, um, you know, the the talking shops of the West. Um, that 
that talking shot, by the way, is is again important, and it and it, and it speaks to um, what Owen Matthews was, was talking about in his article. You know that that what are the limits on on NATO provision, sorry, Western provision and support um, of arms to Kiev. So both very important things to keep an eye on. Um, I, I've had a moment to think about about those rambling thoughts I was um, I was expressing about what the Pope said about um, you know atrocities being committed um, not by Russians themselves but by ethnic minorities within um, Russia. Um, this is this is one of the rare moments where I think I can I can say I'm on the same page as um, the Russian Foreign Ministry being outraged by this. I mean I, I think the fact is Russia's nature is. Of of a kind of multi ethnic empire dominated by Russians, but that many many different peoples in there. There is a fascinating discussion to have um, about about the nature of Russia in that sense um, and what it means for a post war Russia um, and whether Russia could break apart. Things like this. It's something that people discuss um, when they're talking about what will Russia look like after this war. Could could, could we see it? Um, could we see it broken up? Um, or not? Is it, does does it inform uh, why Russia is seeking to reconstitute its empire in Ukraine? It's a very very interesting discussion. Um, I'm afraid uh, Pope Francis has approached it in <laughs> completely the wrong way. Um, but maybe, maybe maybe we can at some point um, talk about that because it is um, it is it is a fascinating, uh, deep, multifaceted issue, um, which I think it is worth. Um, our listeners and the world in general being aware of and and, and being able to grasp um but saying that you know only russia's ethnic minorities commit war crimes is um i i i it speaks for itself last week i spoke to arisia lutsevich arisia is the head of the ukraine forum at chatham house in london we spoke about nato and the war Russia's proxy use of non-governmental organisations, and her thoughts on contemporary Ukrainian politics. Here is our conversation. So I myself am Ukrainian. I'm from western part of Ukraine, and I've been with Chatham House for now more than 10 years, uh, doing research on the forces that are shaping change in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, Belarus. And uh, since the full-fledged invasion, in a way, I think uh, many people's lives changed. It uh, was an intensity of uh, uh, research, of media work, uh, but most important, explaining what is happening in Ukraine. And this is something we do on top of uh, our regular program called Ukraine Forum that I have started eight years ago. And I was already tired before Putin invaded Ukraine. Suddenly, I realized that I haven't uh, really realized little the pressure that is uh, here to come uh, in the coming months. You wrote, the longer this war lasts, the higher the chances it will spill over into NATO territory. I think you wrote that before the incident in Poland last week. So I wondered if you'd like to just explain what you meant and um, talk a little bit about, about the incident in Poland and, and what it means for NATO and, and, and the war in Ukraine. Well, the, the, the quote you're referring to is in my op-ed for The Guardian, and, and actually I have updated it. I was working on the uh, Ukrainian takeover of her son, and before it was released, we have seen this incident in Poland that killed two people right 20 kilometers from the Ukrainian border. And of course, it was a very intense moment where you could see in Ukrainian security community media, there was almost like people took away the breath, thinking, what does that mean for the war? And if 
the war spills over? You know, is it, is it uh, going to take away the attention of Western allies from supporting Ukraine? Or actually, it will mobilize more assistance for Ukraine. Uh, of course, um, what I mean the longer this war lasts is that it is in extreme intensity military conflict that we have not seen on the European continent since the Second World War. Modern wars previously were either quite you know, uh, speedy, fast, almost like these thunderbolts, or they were in some uh, uh, faraway territories in Afghanistan, Iraq, that lasted longer, but had a very limited military uh, engagement of Western uh, armed forces. Well, here we are seeing uh, a pounding of Ukraine by ballistic missiles by Putin. I think today there are more than 4,000 missiles that have been launched on Ukrainian cities, and it's mostly these missiles are used against the civilian infrastructure. What happened on the border with Poland is that Russians were trying to target one of the thermal power stations that is very close to the Polish border. And of course, the miscalculations from what we understand now by Ukrainian air defense caused this incident and tragic loss of life. But you see what I mean? is because Putin is losing his war in the east. He is not able to take any new Ukrainian territory. He decides to break the spine of Ukrainian resistance, but making Ukrainian cities in, uh, difficult to, to live in. So uh, also it means that he is targeting areas close to NATO, NATO uh, borders. Supply routes could be targeted that are delivering Western military assistance to Ukraine. And uh, we may also see some um, sabotage actions inside NATO territory to, for example, disrupt military supply flows. So all of these um, options are on the table, and we should be very aware of the possibility of risks. And I'm sure NATO is uh, preparing for all eventualities. So just on that, you think that the more Putin loses, the, the more risks he, he'll be willing to take. And, and, that, and that's kind of what we're talking about. Absolutely. He is becoming more desperate, more reckless, because he's, uh, um, he was bragging that he'll be able to take Kiev, what, in two, three weeks? And now we are almost nine months in the war, and he actually has lost 50% of the territory that he has, has reclaimed since the start of the invasion. He is losing strategic power all over. His military goals are not being achieved, and he is... Uh, resorting to these barbaric tactics of basically breaking the spine of Ukrainian nation. Let's move on from that. Thank you so much for that answer. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. You, you've written about um, this completely different issue, uh, Russia's use of proxy NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations, to achieve uh, its foreign policy objectives. This is an area we really haven't looked at. So I was wondering if you could just give us your lowdown and what you mean by that, uh, where, they, where they work and whether they're successful or not. Well, you see, this is a very interesting area where something that in the bigger scope of things, the West has underestimated the nature of Putin's regime that led to this horrific war. And I think there were warning signs of what Putin is up to since his kind of second coming to power in 2002, 2000s, when he, he basically um, wanted to consolidate power. He consolidated the power, but then he felt quite emboldened that he can, you know, coerce countries in the former Soviet Union, in his Russia's near abroad, as they called it, uh, in order to maintain Russian grip. 
So, um, to be honest, Putin was also quite paranoid about the color revolutions that took place in Ukraine, in, in, in Georgia, in Moldova, and he was sure that these were kind of doctored by the U.S. government to undermine his friendly puppet uh, pro-Russian regimes. So he thought he would mimic some of that American tactics to create a set of his own uh, agents of influence that would be uh, under the cover of non-government organizations and penetrate various fora such as OECE, Council of Europe, UN, to basically present these groups as independent, but they were mouthpieces of the Kremlin, they were funded by the state, they were not independent groups, they were basically um, under the orders of the Kremlin to spread this worldview, for example, about the violation of rights of Russian ethnic minority in the region, in the Baltic states, in Ukraine. But what is interesting now, as we see it, for example, the role of Orthodox and religious communities, how Kremlin, in a way, fused, Putin fused the power of Orthodoxy and the state, and he uses church, Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine, also to ferment discontent, to split the nation. And we see reports on Ukrainian security services searching Russian main cathedral of the Orthodox Church, Kiev, Pechersk, Lavra, and finding some of the Russian citizens who were harbored there uh, they could have been uh, under suspicion for sabotage, lots of cash, lots of propaganda material about this puppet project of Novorossiya. So you see that uh, they tried to use all tools in order to advance their foreign policy objectives. And many of those groups actually uh, became um, uh, under the sanctions on Ukraine. And they were put by Ukrainian government on a sanction list after the annexation of Crimea and the war that they started in 2014 in the Donbass. Do you think that these groups had um, more success in, in the West and, and in, international, in the international sphere, just partly because the, the West didn't know it as the Baltic states or as Ukraine would have known it? As you said, you know, Ukraine is you know, looking quite hard at these places, and we know we've had the monastery um, raids um, yesterday. It's something we'll look at later, later today. Um, but I'm just wondering if you think that in some area, in some parts of the world, they were quite successful, but they potentially found it quite difficult in, in, in the, as you said, the near abroad. I don't know. Would you agree with that? Is that fair? Uh, not necessarily. I think until the 2014, they also had quite a free hand in Ukraine because nobody, to be honest, saw them as a real threat. Yeah, there were some activists or journalists doing investigations, but the state as such was weak enough to actually go after them and uh, really investigate what it is they were doing. For example, in Crimea, before the annexation in 2013, Russian uh, um, international aid, Rossotrudnichistva, was not you know, doing cultural projects or humanitarian assistance. They were actually brainwashing the local population and journalists about Nazi regime in Kiev, the possible genocidal extermination of the Russian ethnic uh, inhabitants of Crimea. So they wanted to prepare the ground for eventual annexation. This is what they were doing 
In the West, they are more benign, you could argue, but they do penetrate universities. And what they do is they also kind of spread this ideology, the Russian worldview, for example, about the role of Russia in the Second World War, or about the region, or about, for example, the history of Crimea, that has always been Russian. So they, in a way, confirm Russian propaganda and do not work as independent cultural institutions. And we should be just aware of it and decide whether we want to give them a free hand or we think that they are too dangerous for our democracy. Last week we spoke to academic Olga Onich on Ukrainian democracy and the Ukrainian political economy, this political sphere, and she gave us a wonderful sort of rundown of Ukrainian development and change over, since independence. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about that, looking at Slyhanorodnia, uh, looking at Zelensky and his challenges. What would you say are the sort of pressing issues in the domestic sphere for him? Um, and maybe it'd be interesting to look at this sort of just before the war and, and uh, the full-scale invasion, pardon me, and, and, and now. is Yeah, that, that, that's kind of my question. I mean, it's an interesting question because uh, you could see how the nation changes the way it behaves under assault uh, as compared to normal politics of a peacetime. Uh, Zelensky, before the war, was actually losing a grip on his popularity. He's, he was um, supported and trusted by roughly 30-35% of Ukrainians. He seemed like he could not deliver peace, he could not deliver anti-corruption agenda. He was struggling. And then when Russians attacked, everything turned upside down. He was um, quite successful in um, channeling the Ukrainian resistance into his speeches. He was brave to remain in Kiev. And uh, you could see today uh, almost 90% of Ukrainians uh, approve of his policy and 70, almost 70% trust him. This is unheard of level of trust within Ukraine to the office of the president. Ukrainians, let's remember, always a bit suspicious, mistrustful of authority because of the culture of a colonial domination by Russia, by Poland, by Turkey. So uh, Ukrainians are very careful in giving their trust to an individual taking a high office. But um, they, uh, there's a clear consolidation of the nation. But what is interesting that democracy, even under the martial law, remains quite vibrant. Uh, you have uh, people debating questions of the future security architecture for Ukraine, whether it's uh, and how this could be arranged. You have issues about reconstruction of Ukraine, and this is quite impressive uh, under the bombshells and uh, where you have almost 50% of Ukrainian energy grid destroyed with no electricity. Ukrainians are brainstorming the outlook of a future modern Ukraine. Uh, you have issues such as pre press freedom and media freedom uh, being discussed because there was a lot of consolidation of on the media sector with the United National Marathon and some um, TV channels were excluded, mostly affiliated with former President Poroshenko. Uh, many people didn't like it. They thought it was censorship, that it was not a fair media policy, and uh, they are trying to push for change in that. Uh, and also, uh, uh, Ukraine has been granted EU candidate status. This is very significant because EU has put certain conditions 
that Ukraine has to meet before the uh, accession negotiations can open. And these issues are quite complex. It's about rule of law. It's about uh, reforming justice. It's about media reform. So you see, even under the war, under so much stress and strain, Ukrainians are delivering reform. And out of 10 of these different steps, uh, independent experts say Ukraine has completed almost 50% of that and is prepared uh, to deliver more. And finally, economy. I mean, economy is something that Zelensky has to deal. Five million Ukrainians lost jobs. Uh, 40% of Ukraine's economy has been destroyed. People are on the go, on the move. Um, companies are struggling to maintain uh, people because some are mobilized. Women with children are fleeing to safety. So they're trying to install some kind of support, perhaps similar to COVID times here, if you think about make some kind of subsistence lines to companies to preserve their workforce, to be able to function, to pay taxes back to the state, and just to keep Ukraine afloat. So you see his hands are full in addition to fighting Putin. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, I just want to ask, I, we, we, we are months and months and months, you know, since February, the world's media has been looking at, at Ukraine, and we've had people on TVs and podcasts, writing books about what's happening, trying to understand it, trying to interpret it. And I, I wonder, from your perspective, what, what do you think, specifically Western analysts, sort of still get wrong about Ukraine, about Russia, Ukraine and, and this war? There are a couple of issues that I, I noticed, and I think it was not just before this invasion, but overall, I would say, since the collapse of Soviet Union, since some of these countries like Ukraine and others started to assert themselves more as westward looking, uh, uh, trying to reform, I think we have underestimated the actual desire of these countries to pay a price to belong to the transatlantic community. Uh, and, and Ukraine was always kind of perceived as a corrupt, weak state, uh, never able to, kind of muddling through, never using its potential. And I think this war actually showed the strengths of Ukraine on the battlefield because Ukraine has reformed enough, uh, for example, in its armed forces, decentralizing governance, having vibrant civil society. Uh, and the opposite to that is, I think, the misunderstanding of the nature of Putin's regime. So you could hear in the West as the war started again, perhaps it was NATO to blame because the, perhaps U.S. was too assertive in the region. Perhaps there was a room to negotiate with Russia. And I honestly think Russia has been captured by a very conservative security forces group of people that is really on this revanchist neo-colonial conquest because they consolidated power at home. And we thought, oh, perhaps this only will apply to the neighborhood or Russia. But now we see how this threatens the whole world order and reverberates, you know, from food crisis to energy crisis. Uh, and finally, on the battlefield, I think we were too much focused on the number of tanks and uh, man-at-arms that Russia and Ukraine can uh, command, while, uh, while not understanding the uh, importance of morale, the importance of um, smart strategy, the capacity of countries like Ukraine to learn on the go, because it's a free society, and free societies learn so much better than autocracies. And uh, this total mobilization of Ukrainian 
society that is a big floating cushion carrying Ukraine through this horrendous armed conflict with a lot of confidence, uh, a lot of confidence and a lot of desire and preparedness to take suffering for the future that many Ukrainians uh, are confident will be bright. Arusia, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to hear? Well, I think uh, it's important to uh, understand that this war was also caused by a divergence uh, of political cultures of Ukraine and Russia. Uh, And Putin understands that, and he thought it's the last chance for him to keep hold on Ukraine. And that difference is fundamental and often misunderstood in the West that Ukraine is a pluralistic society, that Ukraine rejects autocracy and had these regular, almost 10 years, uprisings, you know, from Orange Revolution to Revolution of Dignity, to assert human rights and to assert justice. So it shouldn't be surprising that now Ukrainians are ready to die and defend all these values because they have been doing it all along. And finally, you know, Ukraine is fighting like team of teams. This is something the modern armies are learning when they have to uh, be effective, mobile, agile. Uh, and that is possible because very strong sense of community and ownership of that um, um, future that is, uh, of course, based on the prosperity and respect for, for an individual. And just my last question, um, potentially leaving the water one side, we, we interviewed a, a Ukrainian novelist yesterday. Um, who gave an interesting answer, who, who said, you know, she'd really love, it's, it's obviously good in some ways that the media are paying attention to this and doing so much. Um, but she wished that, you know, Ukraine would be known after the war for, for different things, for, for things that are not to do with bloodshed and violence um, and the military. I was wondering what you thought about that. What would you, what would you wish that more people knew about Ukraine and Ukrainian society and culture? I actually would like to echo what the novelist said, because I think Ukraine... Uh, is a bit of a black hole for culture in Europe, something that is unexplored, while at the same time, since 2014, there is a real renaissance of Ukrainian culture because it's being threatened by Putin. And as our identity and culture is being threatened, a lot of writers, musicians, artists are expressing uh, very interesting cultural um, you know, uh, manifestation. So there are books, there are, there's music, uh, and, and I think discovering Ukraine through culture is something that I also agree would, uh, would open a very unexpected treasure for many readers and listeners because there is an interesting cultural product. Just to, to get them started, what, where, what would you recommend they look at first in terms of books and music maybe? Well, I, I personally very much like Daha Braha, which is an interesting mix of ethno tradition and um, I would say almost electronic uh, music, ethnofusion, uh, and also for literature. There is Serhi Jadan, who uh, was rumored to possibly get a literature Nobel literature prize this year, but he just didn't make it the cut. But Serhi Jadan, he is a poet, he is a novelist, he is from Luhansk originally in the east. Uh, And he really, through his work, uh, expresses that identity of the borderland, of the frontier, of mining cities, of changes that happened there since the 90s that shaped who Ukrainians in the East are. Arisia, thank you so much for your time. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, yes. (laughs) Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. 
To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.